Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I want to tell you my secret now. I see death. Silent train is people! Hello, and welcome to Slate's Spoiler Specials. I am Allegra Frank, senior editor at Slate, and today I'm joined by fellow senior editor at Slate, Sam Adams. Hi, Sam. Hello, Allegra. How's it going? You just got back from Toronto literally yesterday i did yeah yes i flew in yesterday and boy are my arms tired but uh uh-huh. yes after a week in canada and and four covid tests i am feeling great oh my god okay yeah. well i'm glad that you made it back safely had a lot of swabs up your nose and we're all okay and now you're ready to chat with us about shang chi a movie you did not see in toronto but we both saw recently the new Marvel film. Before we get into it, we're going to spoil it. But what did you think? Were you were you a fan of Shang-Chi? What are, what's your take? I don't think we really talked about it. Uh, yeah, we have not. It is fine, I guess. <laughs> it is, I, you know, probably, I guess, in the upper, like, half of, of Marvel movies. The director, Destin Daniel Cretton, is definitely, like, trying to do some different things in this and... and more importantly, being allowed to, which Marvel does not often let their directors do. And I think that that works interestingly, but, you know, it also has, you know, very many of the same sort of hallmarks and plot beats and familiar structures of, you know, the vast majority of of Marvel movies. So it is hard to both to get excited about a lot of it and to sort of find a lot of daylight between it. Like, I think there's, you know, a couple really great ones and then there's a really large kind of middle and then there's a couple of lousy ones but mm-hmm. you know if i were if i were doing a ranking of the 23 24 movies there are there would probably be like 15 that i would want to put at the same number in the middle somewhere <laughs> one of those <laughs> the fact that 15 could all be like number five on your list it just tells me there's yeah. so many freaking marvel movies <laughs> yes. i i really enjoyed this movie i mean i agree like upper echelon of the middle of the pack but for me, it's like right below the best ones, which I couldn't even tell you what the best ones are anymore because I can't remember. But I really enjoyed it. And I think part of why is because this is an origin story of a character we're not so familiar with. You know, he's not really in the same cultural zeitgeist as someone like Captain America has been. So it, it's been uh, it's kind of cool to be introduced to someone new. And I think this movie does a pretty good job. So let's let's get into it of how Shang-Chi introduces us to Shang-Chi. So Sam, I'm going to punt it to you to start. 
what happens in the beginning? Spoil it. Spoil it for us, because something is interesting about the first 10 minutes of this movie. Yeah, well, the first 10 minutes, for one thing, is not in English. There's a prologue explaining the kind of origins of the character we will come to know as Shang-Chi's father, Wenwu, who is... uh, We'll get to this later, but the character who has sort of mythologically been known as the Mandarin, although he does not like being called that himself. And so it is a story of how the Ten Rings, which is an organization in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but now is also literally the Ten Rings of Power that he has. So it's sort of how he, we don't quite see how he acquired them, because that's going to be a subject uh, for probably a later Marvel movie. But somehow he gets these ten mystical rings that grant him immortality and uh, sort of nebulous magical powers and becomes sort of a warlord moving into, you know, slash kind of underworld gangster figure in the 20th, 21st centuries. So this tells him, tells us all about Wenwu, about his connection to this mythical village of Talo, where the movie is going to end up, how he, you know, fell in love with the woman there. They were sort of kicked out of paradise. And, you know, he kind of had to, you know, carve out a life in this regular world. And then that eventually leads us to the introduction of the person who calls himself Sean. (laughs) Right. Which there's a very funny joke insofar as any humor in Marvel is very funny that Aquafina, who plays Sean or Shang-Chi's best friend, says when he's finally revealing to her about revealing his past to her. She's like, really? You just took one letter off your name and now you're Sean. Is that seriously the name you went with to hide from your father? Because, which is it's true, because we meet Sean or Shang-Chi in San Francisco. He, you know, years later, he's ditched his home life in China to pursue a more normal life in San Francisco. He has always been sort of a, a mysterious figure to his friends, but at the same time comes off as a pretty normal, charismatic Nice, fun dude. But then the facade is punctured one day when he first receives a letter from what he presumes to be his sister. But really, he ends up in a huge fight on a bus. He and his friend Katie, Aquafina's character, are on a bus to work. They work as valets. And suddenly there's a dude with a knife for an arm trudging toward Sean on this bus. And everyone's like, uh, WTF? Why is a man with a knife arm on this bus? And why is he attacking you? So all of a sudden, there's a pretty, I have to say, pretty dope fight. Like this movie obviously is influenced by martial arts. That's the fighting style that Shang-Chi uses predominantly. And so there's this pretty cool, uh, you know, parkour type the fights inside of this bus the knife guy slashes the bus into you know it's like it kind of reminds me of the the train scene in spider-man you know where it's like we are hurtling toward disaster but our superhero is gonna save us in truly improbable ways it's the first real modern day fight scene in the movie where we're actually seeing Shang-Chi in action. And I think it was actually really cool to like get the reveal of, oh, okay, this is, these are his powers and his powers are, you know, they're improbable for a human being to actually do because he's just like this kick-ass martial artist. 
But I liked that they were kind of more grounded, right? Like he doesn't have any Thor or Doctor Strange like superpowers. What did you think of like this first big fight scene, the reveal of, oh, this is what Shang-Chi does? Right. Well, I'm having, I mean, the, the, the Spider-Man 2 reference, having just uh, written a piece about that <laughs> train fight at the end of that movie, I both sort of appreciate the homage and feel like it, you know, sets the bar pretty high. But I mean, this is the rare, maybe the only Marvel movie, I guess, with the exception of maybe one or two Captain Americas and, and Black Panther, where you can say like the fight scenes are the best thing about it. They often tend to be kind of the weak part of the Marvel movies. It, it's kind of widely assumed, although I think everyone is NDA'd out of admitting this outright, <laughs> that the, a lot of the action scenes in the movies are not actually even done by the directors because Marvel has a sort of standing second unit in digital effects division who handles a lot of that stuff. And because they hire a lot of kind of indie directors who are just starting out on um, people like, you know, Destin Cretton, who has done, you know, short term 12 and Chloe Zhao, who's, you know, going from Nomadland to the Eternals, um, people without experience, you know, any experience shooting kind of big action scenes. It's widely assumed and, and the movies often bear this, <laughs> those action scenes are not directed, you know, or primarily kind of conceived by the people who are directing them. But in this case, you know, at least many of the fight scenes until we get to the, the climax, I think, actually do kind of look like something, look like people fighting. There's a lot of, surely with, you know, wire work and stuff involved, but, you know, what looks more or less like practical hand-to-hand combat. Simulia's background, before he was an actor, he was a, a stuntman. And I think that's really kind of his great contribution to this this role is just his physicality. This, you know, especially early on, the fight scenes have that kind of sort of wuja feeling you get from, you know, Chinese martial arts movies where, you know, combat kind of blurs into quasi-magic without ever, you know, explicitly crossing the line. So he, once he, you know, gets the Ten Rings, spoiler, you know, he acquires... <laughs> powers that are just more like fully magical where he's just like you know throwing bolts of light to people and stuff like this but at this point he's just kind of a really badass fighter and that's like really fun to watch in a way that people kind of throwing magical bolts of light across the sky at each other is not so much right yeah i totally agree like (laughs) marvel fight scenes not only are particularly formulaic but i always find them to be not well shot. And I think part of what you're saying of it's usually not the director themselves filming them is part of that. Like Marvel often, you know, has this particular style it wants to do. It has its in-house directors and whatnot, fight coordinators. And I just don't think they're good filmmakers. Like they're not filmmakers. So they, it's just like all the scenes, it's hard to see what's actually happening in the regular Marvel fight scenes. So this one, I think, because at least particularly in this first scene, this first fight scene, it's much better at having a tighter focus because it's a smaller stage for the fight. So it's actually easier to keep track of what the heck is happening. And yeah, I I really, I enjoyed it. I thought it was definitely one of the better fight scenes in this Marvel Cinematic Universe. But we'll get to way more fight scenes throughout the film because this is just the first, and afterward, Katie is very much like, what the heck just happened? Why Why are you being attacked on a bus? And Shang-Chi has to reveal, okay, I got this letter from my sister. I have a sister. 
Her name is Sha Ling, and she lives somewhere in China. I am. She just told me where she is. I haven't seen her in you know a decade, and. I have to go help her because what happened is they were hunting down my pendant. I have this pendant that my mother gave to me before she died when I was younger. And it is a very coveted pendant by my father who, yes, I have a father. I escaped from him because he was pretty abusive and not so and uh, terrible. And he is hunting us down, my sister and I. So I think this was a cry for help for my sister, and I need to go help her. I need to go out to Macau and make sure she doesn't get attacked by a scary knife man, too, and have her pendant stolen. And Katie, very bold of her, is like, yo, I'll come. I want to go to China. This is dope. Even though, you know, Sean is like, "Ah, I mean, I'm going begrudgingly, and I probably will die. Um, But that's fine. Okay. That's one of those things that, like, the movie doesn't really sell in in plot terms particularly well, but it's just, like, because we, like, would like to see more of Aquafina in the movie. It's just, like, I don't, like, we don't really care what the reason is. It's oh, just, totally. like, yeah, don't leave her in San Francisco. Like, but don't care why she's coming, just bring her. <laughs> so it's sort of sold yes. more in, like, in those terms than in terms of, you know, why, when you know you're going into this hugely dangerous situation, would you take, like, your valet parking buddy with you. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, and we'll definitely, by the end of this movie, it's, like, even more blatant, because it's like, okay, you really don't want to lose Aquafina because she is arguably the biggest name, mainstream name in this movie. Like, you know, Simu Liu was on Kim's Convenience, which is popular on Netflix, but, you know, isn't the most well-known Tony Leung was in several, you know, was in In the Mood for Love. So if you're a film buff, you know him. But Aquafina has a Comedy Central show. Aquafina was in Crazy Rich Asians. Like, you're not going to underutilize Aquafina in your movie. I mean, I think she's definitely, like, the biggest English language star in the movie. Like, right. I mean, Tony Leung and, and Michelle Yeoh are both, like, huge all across Asia. But, you know, Aquafina is, like... You know, for the whatever the the American under thirties, she's kind of really going to kind of bring in that demographic who Marvel obviously wants to uh, service. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's definitely like okay, this is a Disney movie. Let us not forget, <laughs> this is still a Disney yeah. movie. So yeah, Katie and Sean, aka Shang Chi, show up in Macau, and it turns out Sha Ling, his sister, has this fight club that she kind of co-owns and is you know, having these fights that people are betting on and watching and it's very packed and popular and Shang-Chi is thrown into a fight because, you know, he is known to be a good fighter. Also, he looks like a good fighter. And we want fights. We want fights. I mean, it's another reason to take his shirt off. Exactly. another reason to get him into a fight. (laughs) Even Katie's like, damn, I've never seen you. You got a freaking 10 pack. So he ends up fighting Cha Ling, And again, I think this is a pretty good fight scene because it's in one contained area. They're in the fighting ring, just beating each other up. And I kind of love seeing that. Do I love seeing a man beat up a woman? No, but I love seeing a woman beat up a man in a film where it is controlled and no one is actually getting hurt. I don't love it in any other context, to be clear. Just to be clear. Yes. yes. Yeah. And also, this is one of the times where, as, as we talked about, like, Every character in this is 
new, like all the main characters are new to the Marvel universe and they're not as familiar to the audience as other characters were initially, you know, like Iron Man is pretty well known, like outside of the movies, he was well known enough. But Shang-Chi just does not have that same traction. So we start to see little Marvel references and they compound throughout the movie. So there is a little Marvel reference in this fight scene. Did you did you catch it? The one Marvel character? I caught I caught half of it. I mean, I noticed, you know, Benedict Wong, who is, you know, Master Wong from the Doctor Strange movies, is one of the people in the ring at the fight club. I did not, because this is like practically an Easter egg at this point. The movie's been so long, and it's the one I think basically by common consent, like either the worst or the second worst Marvel movie going back to The Incredible Hulk. (laughs) Right. But yeah, but apparently Tim Roth's abomination is the person fighting him in the ring. And I guess they actually got Tim Roth to come in and growl or whatever, because he didn't even, I don't think he even actually has any lines. But yeah, so that is, that's your little, (laughs) just in case you like thought you walked into the wrong theater or wondering when the MCU, as we know it, is going to show up at this point. Right. Yeah, that's your little (laughs) nod to that. Yes. It's like having, uh, you know, Martin Freeman turn up in Black Panther. Like, just, okay, you somebody you know. Yeah. Okay. Um, did you, do you think anyone, like, as you said, it's an Easter egg. Do you think anyone honestly watching this movie was like, oh, I recognize that. That's Tim Roth's character from The Incredible Hulk. Like, literally, I cannot imagine more than 2% of viewers noticing that. I'm I'm sure someone watched the entire you know MCU in lockdown and was like oh look it's the abomination <laughs> yeah but I have not seen it since you know 2000 whatever so right. I did not that is yeah I, I mean I've never seen it so I was just like big monster okay don't care moving on so moving on from big monster we have the fight and this is the this is the big <laughs> sort of more Marvely fight where you know Shang Chi and his sister are attacked by um, the Ten Rings and. It goes sort of down the outside of a building and we have this giant skyscraper mm-hmm. and there's all this kind of, you know, people flying around and shattered glass and scaffolding and stuff like this. And it starts to, this is the point where you're just like, I can't tell like where that fist came from or where that person was from like one one shot to the next. <laughs> yeah. So this is the part where it starts to, you know, unravel a little bit, I think. But yes, Shang-Chi and... And his sister and, and Katie, to the extent that she is a combatant here, they lose and they are captured by the Ten Rings, where we are reintroduced to Tony Young's Wenwu, who looks being immortal pretty much just as he did in the prologue. Right. Yes. It's not a shocking twist that they lose because, like, obviously it's at this point 40 minutes into the movie or something and we need something to happen and Shang-Chi is not about to defeat his sister 40 minutes in. So yes, they lose and they end up going with their dad, Wen Wu, to his very fancy compound where they grew up because, you know, there was a reason he wanted those pendants and he takes them back to give them that reason. And again, this is like another funny moment where it's like, let's give Aquafina something to do so people are hooked. And they all are like sitting at dinner. And of course, like he brings Aquafina with them. And he's like asking her questions, asking her her Chinese name, like getting to know her. And it's kind of like, oh, is this a dad meeting, thinking he's meeting his son's girlfriend? Like, it's just kind of a weird, it's kind of a sweet scene, but also tonally strange. Like, why is why are we sitting down to a normal-ish dinner right now? 
okay, so so two two important things happen in the scene. One is that Wenmu kind of lays out the plot of the rest of the movie, which is that he is, I mentioned this sort of, you know, mythical village Talo that his wife, who was assassinated by his rivals, came from and he was not allowed to enter. And he tells them that he has heard his dead wife's voice, or maybe not dead wife's voice, calling to him from Talo. And now he has to find his way to this village, which is, I, I think, sort of loosely explained to be in another dimension, as opposed to just just magic. But yeah, there's a kind of secret way to get there. If you don't take the right way, you will be kind of, you know, crushed by sentient trees. And he needs their two pendants to activate the map to this place. So that's one thing. The second thing that happens, I wrote a piece about this for Slate.com, is that he starts to talk about the Mandarin, not the mythical character that sort of he is known as in the comics, but the MCU's version of the Mandarin, which if you remember all the way back to Iron Man 3, eight years ago, they did kind of a switcheroo on that, where the, the Mandarin in the comics historically is this very sort of you know, Orientalist Fu Manchu caricature of a sort of scheming Asian villain compete with, you know, like the long beard and the droopy mustache and everything. And so they obviously did not use that in the Iron Man movie that came out eight years ago. And they first, they converted the character into this sort of, you know, quasi, you know, Islamic jihadist played by Ben Kingsley, who also has a strong, strong American accent. So it's this weird, just kind of, concatenation of like xenophobic tropes and just like whatever it is we're scared of, like just put it all into this one character. And then you find out midway through that movie that Ben Kingsley is not in fact the Mandarin, but he's a a British actor named Trevor Slattery who has been hired by the movie's real villain. Who's like an arms contractor uh, to play this character and kind of extend and exacerbate the war on terror so that the movie's real villain can just keep making money off it. So he, we find out in Shang-Chi that Wenwu is not very happy about this British actor kind of taking up his historical mantle, using this <laughs> like racist term to refer to it. And so as a result, he has uh, you know, basically imprisoned him in his dungeon for the last you know, six or seven years. And this character who was never, who was always a sort of kind of shaky, you know, ketamine-addled version of, like, Hugh Grant's character in Paddington 2. Um, <laughs> it's only gotten more so. So they get thrown into the dungeon, and there is Ben Kingsley as Trevor Slattery, basically out of his mind, but in an, in an extremely enjoyable way. I know, what did you think of... Did you remember all that backstory? What did you think of him turning up here? This is where I admit that I have never seen Iron Man 3. Iron Man 2 or Iron Man 1. <laughs> I have never seen any Iron Man movie. I am not like I I am an, a Marvel fan in that I am a Spider-Man fan and I am a fan of popular culture. So I after the Avengers I was like I'm I'm on this. I think Chris Hemsworth is cute and I'll watch these movies. Didn't ever see Thor 1 or Thor 2. But there are so many Marvel movies I have not seen and have no interest in watching. And I know Iron Man 1 is supposed to be pretty good. But I just, like, don't care enough. So I had no idea what was going on. And I feel like there's probably people like me who also were like, "Who? why is Ben Kingsley here? I don't know who this is. 
thankfully the person who I saw the movie with was like, oh, that's, he was in Iron Man 3. And he also asked me, as you did, do you remember this? And I was like, I've never seen that movie. You know that. And he was like, I don't understand why you watch Marvel movies. And I was like, because I have to be part of the zeitgeist. So I do not know who this person is. I am so glad you wrote about him. But I was, uh, I was fascinated by, you know, the reintroduction once I actually found out <laughs> what was happening. Please don't judge me, Sam. Yeah, I, I do not. And, I, and I, I really, you know, anybody who has not spent, uh, you know, whatever, 50 hours, 50, 60 hours of their lives watching almost every second that Marvel has put out in the last 13 years, uh, I salute you. Uh, I hope you, you know, made yourself a nice lunch or something with that, with that time. But I, <laughs> yes. but I, I do think, I mean, there, there is, I mean, I think some of the Marvel, the recent Marvel projects, like um, especially the TV shows, which were tied to... Uh, you know, WandaVision was tied to Age of Ultron and Loki was tied to Thor the Dark World. And it, it, it feels like something slightly sadistic about the way that Marvel is kind of like encouraging people to go back and watch some of their worst movies. Like you throw in a reference to The Incredible Hulk mm-hmm. in this one, which before Mark Ruffalo was even playing the character with Edward Norton and you're going to send people back to watch that. That just seems unfair. <laughs> but I think this is one of one of the more like sort of interesting retcons i guess it's um they tend to do something similar in in black widow kind of dealing with that character but this is a you know really kind of interesting reflection what i you know i think was in sort of an interesting twist in iron man 3 to begin with but um there were you know people who were fans of the character the mandarin who were definitely not happy that the marvel cinematic universe basically defined him out of existence and said okay not only is this character like not an asian character but also he's not asian and oh by the way he doesn't exist and they you know there are more recent versions of the character that are not <laughs> offensive caricatures and people were like why you know what happened to that guy like how come we can't get the you know the mandarin from you know, 21st century Iron Man instead of Ben Kingsley doing a, a work. And it, and it kind of shows you also like how much, you know, how much farther Marvel sort of as an entity have, has come in eight years, how their priorities have shifted, because it really tells you that, I mean, in 2013, they were not thinking about like, okay, eventually we're going to make a movie with an Asian lead and that lead is going to be Shang-Chi and then we're probably going to need the Mandarin. So maybe we shouldn't just like, cleverly write him out of existence in Iron Man. It, it shows you that, you know, obviously it's still evolving, which is fine, but it also shows how their their imagination has really kind of opened up in a lot of ways, which is sort of cool. And it also puts Ben Kingsley, who is, I think, I think basically the only significant non-Asian character in the movie, in this sort of, you know, bumbling comic sidekick role. I don't know if he's officially on drugs in this movie. He certainly acts like he is the whole way either that or his brain is just completely shot. Um, and he has a minor plot role because he can somehow communicate with this weird, like, magical creature that has stumble, somehow, like, st- stumbled over from Talo. So he's the one who can kind of show them the way to get there. But he's just purely there for comic relief. And it's on one level, it's just, like, fun to see Ben Kingsley get to do that because it's not what people call on to do very much, but it's also sort of neat to see that character who is, you know, made such a sort of menacing villain in Iron Man 3, then just being kind of a, like, stoned goofball in this movie. Right. I thank you for the clarification. I do agree. I think, like, you know, having the backstory now of, okay, this is the 
correction for the Mandarin and how that was sort of an offensive, you know, usage of that of that title and how that whole character was kind of warped. I, I did appreciate like how they reclaim that for Wen Wu in this film. Once I got that context, I was like, oh, that's cool. That's good. I'm happy about this. So yeah, once we have Trevor introduced, that's sort of when things get, I mean, yes, that he's the comic relief, but also he's inexplicably has like the key to helping out with getting the dad to chill. Basically, when Wu will not chill because he thinks that his wife is calling out to him from her home village of Talo, which is where they met in the beginning of the film. That's where they were having their fight. And he basically is like, she's not dead after all, because, you know, when Shang-Chi and Zhaoling were children, they saw her get killed while he, dad was away. And he says, well, actually, he, she's not dead. I keep hearing her voice. And these pendants will tell me how to get back to the mythical Talo. And Trevor Slattery is actually able to direct them there, Shang-Chi Katie and Zha Ling secretly without their father because his new animal bestie, Morris, somehow it came from Talo and now is best friends with Trevor and is able to be their guide. So they all drive. I saw people compare this movie to like Hayao Miyazaki, which I thought was a really, really lame comparison because it's like, you're just thinking of Asian directors right now. I see what you're doing. But this part did remind me of Spirited Away because they're driving through a forest that's leading them to a mysterious, magical place. So it does sort of have Spirited Away vibes. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the Talo stuff is, you know, I mentioned that the, the movie gets to do kind of some some different things mm-hmm. visually and that the, the Talo stuff, the sort of the the Mandarin prologue and the stuff where they go to Talo is, you know, among that, there's a sort of grove that serves as the the meeting place between Wenwu and his, his wife at the beginning of the movie that's very much sort of, you know, House of Flying Daggers era Zhang Yimou, some stuff that kind of looks like his The Great Wall at the end, too. And that is really kind of beautiful in a way that these movies very rarely are. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think some of the reference points that people have cited are a little bit off, but it is, you know, as the movie kind of moves into this mythological past, I think it's at the very least drawing on movies outside of the sort of standard Marvel lookbook, um, which is just a nice thing to see. Let's pause our conversation for a moment to take a quick break. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hey, listeners, before we get back to the show, we wanted to remind you how great it is to become a Slate Plus member. With a Slate Plus membership, you'll even get bonus episodes for shows like Culture Gabfest and Big Mood, Little Mood. And you'll get unlimited reading on the Slate website without ever hitting a paywall again. So if you want to support us and support Slate, sign up for Slate Plus. It's only $1 for the first month. 
Just go to slate.com slash spoiler plus. And now back to the show. I agree. Like it's definitely, that's part of what I like about this movie is the uniqueness and diversity of settings and inspirations. I don't know if Daniel Dustin Crudden did credit Miyazaki at all, but I, I agree. Like it does get to do, as you said, many different things, which keeps it engaging throughout, keeps it a lot more interesting than the average Marvel origin story is to me. Because yeah, once again, Talo, it is this really beautiful, pastoral, lush setting, where all these mythical creatures are walking free, and uh, they have these really unique, beautiful designs. Some of them are very cute. I enjoyed how cute they were. And Basically, when they get there, at first, the citizens of Talo are like, why the frick are random people here? We don't want you in our village, GTFO. But then Shang-Chi, <laughs> Shang-Chi and Zha Ling are like, nah, dudes, our mom is from here. And that's our aunt. They meet their aunt. And also, guess what? Ten rings, the ten rings, which is, did we even explain what the ten rings are? It's when Wu's like little pal he has he wears 10 rings on his arms it's kind of vague to me like it's called this but i honestly could never remember how many rings there are i just call this movie shang chi the rings are like relevant to a point but when wu is coming basically he's coming for yes. talo yeah and we should but i'll mention here to this village scene i realize you know some people have sort of bristled a little bit of this movie being compared to squarely to Black Panther, and there's a lot of differences between them, but there is the the village of, of Talo does have a sort of, you know, sort of similar makeup to the kind of Afrofuturist land of Black Panther in that is, you know, it is a very much kind of a mythical setting and other, you know, traditional pagodas and things like that. But also, you know, the characters have these sort of weapons and, and powers, which seem more like something out of, out of science fiction than out of myth. But there's a whole, you know, they're preparing for a battle. So, of course, you have to have a training montage. And actually, I mean, I think my favorite sequence in the whole movie, I mentioned, you know, how much I like the kind of physical fighting aspects of it. And there's a bit where Shang-Chi has to kind of learn how to fight his father because he was kind of trained up to a point, but he does not know how to fight someone who has the power of the Ten Rings. And Michelle Yeoh is kind of her sister was the only person ever actually able to fight him. So she's kind of passing on her technique to him. And there's, you know, it's this very kind of, you know, classical martial arts movie setup when they're in this kind of bamboo grove, you know, standing across from each other. She's doing movements and he's following them. And you're actually just seeing them do these movements by themselves. It's, they're not like, you know, CG doubles or whatever. He's a stunt person. Michelle Yeoh has done this kind of stuff for a living for a long time. And it's just, you know, it's like watching Fred and Ginger dance or something like that. It, it's just really pleasurable just to be able to, like, watch people move in shots that last longer than a second, especially in this especially in this context, but, you know, just in general. So that's really just the simplicity of it, the fact that the movie kind of stops for a minute and just lets them do that and kind of exchange these things. I really, I just really liked watching that. Oh, I love a Fred and Ginger comparison. That is, it is sweet. It does like have this really well-fitting choreography in terms of like the actors fitting together almost. You know, like as we said, the fight scenes in Marvel are often not the best parts of the movie, but I think 
the choreographic elements here really work. And as you said, like the actors, it's not marred by CGI. Of course, the CGI, there is a lot of it, of course. Like there's a dragon that shows up in the big fight and all those creatures. And were they on location? I don't know. They never are anymore. But like the actual actors are pulling off these moves themselves. And there's something really special about watching that together. So we're, we're watching these fights. We're watching people beat each other up. It's kind of cool. Katie has, again, proven her value to being here. She picks up archery because she wants to be useful. And she uh, is, of course, a very good archer all of a sudden. So good for Katie. In like a day. Yeah. In like a day. Yeah. Because literally they're like, the Ten Rings are coming soon. Clock's ticking. And Katie's like, I got to figure out how to be useful. So I will be the best archer now, which comes in handy quite soon. But uh, yeah, the the Ten Rings show up. And when Wu continues to be convinced that his wife is beyond this dark gate that is sealed off because there is something called the Dweller in Darkness that is locked behind there, he is known to eat souls. And this caused a lot of havoc in Talo once upon a time. And they're very afraid that when Wu is going to try and bust the gate open because he is under the spell, the dweller in darkness has convinced him that his wife is back there in the hopes of getting Wen Wu to open the gate. And then this is where this fight scene is the big climactic one. And I will say it is probably my least favorite because it is the most marvely. It does have the CGI. There's rain going on. There's a lot of moving parts. You know, we're cutting between the land portion, which is the villagers of Talo and Katie and Xiaoling. Well, Xiaoling also ends up in the dragon part, but they're all beating up everyone in the Ten Rings. And then over on the mountain cliff where the dweller is, you know, there's a dragon that comes in and Shang-Chi is beating up his dad. It kind of moves back and forth in a way where I'm like, this feels very long and this feels very drawn out. But there is the cool part where the members of the Ten Rings kind of betray Wen Wu because even they think he's nuts. And they join forces with the villagers to attack the little minion creatures that the dweller unleashes. So that's a little fun. Yeah. I, I mean, that is, you know, I sort of enjoy, we have sort of two things going on here, which is this sort of mystical battle between, you know, primarily between Shang-Chi and Wenwu, and then eventually between their sort of basically the bad dragon, who's the dweller in darkness and the good dragon called the great protector, who has sort of been mentioned, I think, but never seen in the movie up to that point, and then sort of, you know, leaps out of the adjoining lake at the climactic, you know, moment of decision. So you have that going on, and then you have a sort of more, you know, traditional military combat going on on the ground. And, uh, you know, I find the, <laughs> the latter part a lot more interesting, but it is building towards this very sort of, you know, mythical, blurry you know, iridescent dragons kind of swooping at each other inside a computer somewhere. <laughs> and that just like, you know, at that point, it's just like where it just becomes kind of like hard for me to watch, I have to say. And this, you know, may just be my uh, whatever, my taste, my orientation or whatever. But, I, you know, I find that when you get to that, get to that part of the movie, it just feels really um, kind of, you know, 
weightless and inconsequential right at the moment that the stakes are supposed to be because you know naturally you know the whole world is at stake because the whole world always has to be at stake (laughs) you know if the dweller in darkness is unleashed it's gonna you know consume everybody's souls and presumably things will you know be bad at that point and um it it just you know for me it really let the air out of the movie at that point i mean also this movie is long too so the length of this for me was just like, okay, again, like I, we can wrap it up here. I agree. The part on land worked better for me too, and was easier to follow. It's just, once you get dragons and everything involved, it's like, come on, just let's chill everyone. But the good news is Shang-Chi, well, Actually, it's bad news. When Wu dies, it's kind of sad, actually. Usually, we would think it's a good thing, but it's actually sad because at this point, Wen Wu and his son have made amends for, you know, Wen Wu being abusive all of Shang-Chi's childhood. Yes. <laughs> you know, but it's like kind of okay now. And um, it's like, sorry, sorry, I was a <laughs> shitty dad and also unleashed a soul eating demon. Right. Upon yeah. Sorry, I, you know, killed your mo- many people from your mother's homeland after abusing you and betraying you your whole life. But Shang-Chi is almost killed by the dweller in darkness. And then when Wu saves him, which is nice, and he gives his son the ten rings and then he is killed. So now... The legend of the Ten Rings is that Shang-Chi has them, which is great. And he goes, yay! He goes from being like a cool, badass martial artist to being a cool, magical guy, which is also not as fun, because the Ten Rings, I couldn't really explain to you what they do, but they make him strong and super-powered, and this is why he gets to be a superhero now. He uh, gets to use magical ring power, and that's how he defeats... Right, I mean, this is... This is sort of technically the the second movie in in the sort of phase four of the MCU, but you know Black Widow, which is the first one, is a like a you know is a flashback movie and is really only exists because Scarlett Johansson had it in her contract that they had to make a movie starring her, um, even after <laughs> yeah. they killed her character. So this is really this is really like the first you know proper movie in the plot of it. And, you know, this is going to be the phase that it's all about. I mean, the next movie is Eternals. You're going to have a Doctor Strange movie about the multiverse. You know, the MCU is really, like, going cosmic at this point. So his Shang-Chi's powers, what, I mean, I couldn't tell you what the Ten Rings do at the end of the movie, but it's it's maybe anything. Like, you know, at one point he's, like, flying up in the air and, you know, the Dweller in Darkness, like, swallows the Ten Rings and then he kind of makes them swirl around inside its belly and blow them up from the inside. So they're just kind of magical things that can, as far as I can tell, do whatever it is the plot calls for. Yeah, which is like kind of, I mean, I don't want to say it's lazy. It's just kind of vague. And, but, you know, I, I can, I can live with that. It makes sense. Yeah, it's just a weird, it's just there. They're just accessories that help out at, at times. And the, predominantly, we do get to see Shang-Chi do some actual fighting moves. So it's ultimately fine. It's just, it more works as like a symbolic gesture of dad and son will remain united in, even in death or whatever. So yeah, we kind of hit the end of the movie because when Wu's dead, mom is still dead. A lot of other people are dead. Dweller in Darkness is dead. But Shang-Chi, Xia Ling, Katie, they're all okay. And Shang-Chi says goodbye to his sister who wants to go back to 
the Ten Rings compound and dismantle it now that they are essentially done when Wu is no longer here to lead his army. So they all disperse. But then Shang-Chi and Katie go back to their normal lives in San Francisco after all of this drama. It's interesting because usually a superhero is called on to like save the world. And Shang-Chi sort of is because his dad is very powerful, but it's more like a family battle. It's like a family issue he had to go settle. Like theoretically, Shang-Chi could just never be a superhero again because he's just like, I killed dad. I saved my hometown. Now back to karaoke in SF. It's kind of nice. Yes. I, did you think that was weird? I kind of liked that. I mean, it's, you mentioned the first Iron Man. And for me, I mean, I think, and I, I would imagine this is entirely conscious on Kevin Feige's part and, and everyone else. But for me, you know, they have retroactively branded the first three phases of the, the MCU as the Infinity Saga, you know, which is ending with, uh, you know, Avengers Infinity War. It's also the one where most of the stars' contracts ran out. So we say goodbye to Scarlett Johansson and Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans. And this felt very much like, you know, the restart of something like the first Iron Man, this is very much kind of a focused on a single character. I think, unfortunately, as, as an actor, Simulia is no Robert Downey Jr. Um, I, I found his character like a little inert. But it, you know, it, it tells this whole story, it finishes it, and then just as Iron Man had the post credit scene where Samuel Jackson shows up and says like, hey, I'm thinking about this thing called the Avengers. <laughs> this movie has Simulia and, and Aquafina having drinks with their buddies and telling about the adventure they went just on. And then a little magical door opens and in comes Benedict Wong and says, hey, why don't you come back to the Sanctum Sanctorum? Because I have to tell you about the plot of the next Doctor Strange movie. <laughs> right. Definitely. It's like, this movie has been so long. Let's just end it on a nice note. But of course we can't. Of course, we got to set up that this is relevant. I was kind of like, you know what? I could do with like a Marvel main series adjacent thing with Shang-Chi and his adventures. Although I do like the idea yeah. of, you know, he's an Avenger too, you know, like I want him to matter. I want him to matter, but we could have had like a black Panther thing where we understand it will fit into Avengers, but it's also still its own thing and sort of tangential, but yeah. Right. And I'll tell you, Sam, I've never seen Dr. Strange. So I was like, I don't care. I, I guess I'll see the next one. <laughs> I just don't. I, I, I know at this point because Benedict Wong was in Avengers, but I was like, eh, I don't I don't care about these people. I have no I don't like Benedict Cumberbatch. Honestly, Marvel only gets me if I like the actor and I don't care about Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> You're like, please stop telling me that you don't watch Marvel movies. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't I mean, it's I, I don't care. I, I would advise it. As I said before, I just I, I just saw Benedict Cumberbatch in a Jane Campion movie he was very good. So, but I, I would not make a case for his over across the board. And he, and he does not, in fact, turn up in this movie. It is just Wong taking them back to Doctor Strange HQ, where Mark Ruffalo, Bruce Banner, and uh, Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel, are kind of, I don't know, kind of space zooming in or something. They're holographically present at this conference where they're kind of doing a little sort of molecular analysis of the Ten Rings or something. There's a very brief reference at the beginning of the movie to, you know, no one knows where Wenwu found the Ten Rings. Um, some people say it was in a crater, and then that kind of gets forgotten to, for two hours. And then they do this kind of thing where they zoom, 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 you know, like 
in on the Ten Rings, like down on the molecular level, and there's something pulsing, and they say it's a beacon. Um, and we don't know for what. I think the implication is it's, you know, like space-oriented somehow, but uh, we will have to tune in next time to find out what that is. Yeah, I will say the post credit scene resonated with me because I have seen Avengers, and this was the first time we're seeing... Bruce Banner again, and he is inexplicably not the Hulk anymore because he was supposed to stay in Hulk mode. So that was slightly intriguing to see him again in a human form. And it is sort of exciting to know he'll be back soon enough. Not shocking, but exciting. Likely in what's next, She-Hulk for him, and then the Marvel. Yeah, the She-Hulk TV series. Yeah, yeah, on Disney. A couple Plus. more TV series is before the next right. film. There's also part of that post credit scene is um, Shang-Chi and Katie, a callback to earlier in the film where they go do karaoke. They're like, yeah, we can start on all the superhero stuff now. Or Master Wong, you want to come join us for uh, karaoke? So they all play, they all go to karaoke and it's actually quite fun. Yes. Quite yes. sweet. Yes. <laughs> and quite yet, done. There's a second and final post credit scene. We got to have a real post credit scene. So. I, I always sit through the credits for Marvel movies, even though I'm acting like I'm a bad Marvel fan. Like, I still am a fan, you know? Like, I, ha- I pick and choose. I'm not interested in Doctor Strange. I'm not really interested in Iron Man. One day I will watch his movies. But I am interested in the overarching storyline. So I sat through the rest of the credits. Very long credits. And then the final moment is we cut back to Sha Ling, who, as we mentioned, is dismantling the compound her father's compound but you know she's kind of looking through her old room you see that she has if not fond memories memories you know she is it's hard to throw out every piece of your childhood so she's sort of wavering and going through her her memorabilia and then someone calls her out to the main courtyard and instead of saying hey we're gonna go now bye this is, you know, we're, we're, we don't uh, work here anymore. There's a ton of people fighting in the courtyard, training. Um, and the suggestion, the implication is that she didn't get rid of the Ten Rings. She has taken over her father's compound. She is now taken over his, his theoretical, his hypothetical throne. And now he, she's in charge. So whether it's that she has reinvigorated her fight club, which got destroyed in the battle with the the Ten Rings folks earlier on, or maybe she is going to just start her own army to either defend China or the world or something more devious, we see her seated and ready to uh, keep prepping for whatever may happen in the future. So it's vague enough to make you consider, you know, the possibility that maybe she will take up her dad's villain mantle, but also vague enough to make you think maybe this is all a good thing. Maybe she is going to be the protector of this, this place that her brother kind of doesn't have time to be. And it also promises that the 10 rings will return. So, you know, we have a little flash there that they will be back, which we know Shang-Chi will be back, but the Ten Rings, too, are they 
Are they bad? I mean, Shang-Chi has them now. So what does that exactly mean? Yeah, I mean, that feels to me, because we know, I mean, we obviously don't know any of the plots, but we know at least, you know, the names and the the characters of the, you know, the next several Marvel movies. And, and, you know, it doesn't seem, especially if they're focused on these kind of cosmic battles, it doesn't really seem like this sort of underground, you know, criminal organization, like, really fits into that. So this feels to me like it's probably going to be a setup for a Disney Plus TV show. But who knows? Right. I would be very down for Shaoling show. So, you know, I, I hope I hope that's where they're going. Yeah, and it, that would be neat, actually, because, I mean, one of the, this didn't really end up getting borne out, but one of the, you know, reasons that, that I, among other people, was looking forward to The Falcon and the Winter Soldier is, it seemed like, oh, here's going to be a show that's, like, actually based on, like, sort of hand-to-hand combat, like, physical fights, and not just, like, glowy bolts of light again and it didn't really turn out that way but it seems like if they build a series around the ten rings and around her there's going to be more of that kind of fighting and uh that would be nice right yeah i i'm very into that and overall i mean so we're we're into a shaoling show but are we into a shang chi sequel or a shang chi reappearance i think we both are but where where are you now that the movie is over I am I am excited that as far as we can tell, wherever Shang Chi goes, uh, Katie must follow, because you know I I don't don't enjoy watching Simi Liu like talk all that much. There's a big monologue he has in this where he sort of explains you know how his father turned him out as an assassin when he was a kid, you know kind of you know ruined his life, corrupted his soul, yada yada, and it's just not good i guess would be like <laughs> i just i think he's a very limited actor but and every time but every time the camera cuts away to, to katie watching him i was like taking a big cool drink of water like it's, it's so much better to watch aquafina act um so i'm i'm excited for more katie i'm certain there will be more shang chi because his rings are going to be important somehow and they're building I think he's, you know, supposed to be an Avenger at some point. You know, we're going to have to see how this all fits together because it's all, you know, tremendously secret and everything. But yeah, I I think this, you know, it feels like an an intriguing start for whatever this new, you know, giant sweep of however many dozen movies is eventually going to be called. I'm definitely looking forward to Chloe Zhao's Eternals movie. And the, the Doctor Strange movie, which has been taken over by Sam Raimi. Oh, and the, and the Spider-Man multiverse movie with all the various Greens Goblins and Doctor's Octopus. Doctor's so, Octopus. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that'll that'll be fun. I'm super excited for that one. I am very here for Spider-Man and the Eternals. So you and I will hopefully reunite for that one. All right. In a few months. We team. Yes, we will. Love this team. Frankly, big fan of this team. You and I, we're Shang-Chi and Katie. Well, you can decide. I think you're Katie. I'm Shang-Chi. I would, I would love that. Yes, you're my Katie. I am Sean and you're my Katie. Well, that is our show. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows that we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com, unless it is negative, in which case send it to spoilers at slate.net. Our producer is Morgan Flannery. For Sam Adams, I'm Allegra Frank. Thanks for listening. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.